All right, we are uh, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians 1. Let me read the first eight verses and we'll start with unpacking that. Paul starts in chapter 6 dealing with some of the things that uh, they have written him about uh, in a previous letter that we talked about earlier. And he does that in several of these uh, next chapters. And when, next week when we get to chapter 7, chapter 7 is a really long chapter. It's the longest chapter in the book. It's uh, 40 verses, and it's all about marriage and singleness and things like that. So um, that'll be a really exciting chapter. I don't even know if we'll get through the whole thing next week. But um, he starts with this problem of lawsuits in Corinth, and we're going to have to try to explain what's going on in their context and then do the best we can to apply it to our context here as well. So he writes this, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? You see, there's just this uh, string of rhetorical questions that he's assuming they know the answer to, but don't want to deal with. And then he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law or goes to the court system against brothers, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Some fairly tough language in here. Paul continues to sort of harsh the mellow vibe in Corinth. He addresses yet another big problem in the Corinthian church. They have sexual immorality of the kind that even pagans would be ashamed of. And they're taking, now he says, you're taking all of your disputes to the world, which among many other problems makes Christians look foolish and petty. It's a very difficult um, witness that they are giving the rest of, of Corinth there. So in verse 1, he says... If we do have disputes, we should try to settle them before the leaders of the church. We have to understand what he means by uh, disputes. And I'll get to that in a second. But uh, the problem with, one of the problems with actually taking this to the courts is that it was further and it will further exacerbate the problem of factions and divisions within the church. And the reason is because and I've seen this actually happen in churches before. Somebody sues somebody else, and the next thing you know, they're trying to line up people in the church to take sides. And so it starts causing divisions and factions because they believe there's a lot at stake. 
Also, it becomes the scuttlebutt of what's going on in the church. Y'all know what scuttlebutt means? I know that's an old-timers term. It's like gossip, okay? But it becomes the thing, the gossip that everybody's talking about, and it detracts from the mission and the vision, the, focus, the focusing on the mission and the vision. But then also in verse 2, Paul gives us another reason that this is a problem. He says in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So now he's used this word disputes, and now he's using the word trivial as well. So is Paul saying here that many of the things that people are in church uh, in conflict about, are many of those things trivial? (laughs) It's okay, you can answer, and you can answer with a big fat yes, yeah. A lot of what people are arguing about in church is very trivial. And I know you're thinking, well, in 21st century American church, we don't immediately sue anybody, okay? No, not necessarily, not always, most of the time. But in Corinth, that's what they did, and I'll get to that in a second. He says, in fact, that was part and parcel of living in the Corinthian society. That's just what they did in Corinth. The civil court system in Corinth was constantly busy and backed up, And the reason is because the civil court system in Corinth was part of the social hierarchy uh, for somebody in Corinth to be able to sue and win. It was part of how you made your bona fides. It was was sort of like a game. It it was like going and playing tennis with somebody, only it it would make people a lot angrier than, well, unless you're Jimmy Connors or somebody like that. Anyway, Jimmy Connors is another reference that maybe only Ira gets, okay? So... John McEnroe, how's that for a reference? Ely Nastasi, anybody remember him? Okay, there you go. They used to call him Nasty, remember? Yeah, Ely Nastasi, Nasty. All right, anyway. So, and they liked to go to, the, go to court over really trivial matters. They'd go, they would go to the courts over uh, the equivalent of burnt toast, spilt milk, and an eye roll. Okay, stuff that we would generally just dismiss. So... The question is, um, do, we, do we avoid these things? Do we let them go? Do we compete? Do we accommodate? Paul is going to get into that. Um, there are, uh, according to uh, the communication scholar Joseph DeVito, and he's no relation to Danny, so don't worry, um, there are five uh, strategies or styles of conflict resolution. Three of them are not helpful. One of them is avoidance. Now, understand, avoidance is different than just letting something go. Avoidance is you're annoyed, you're mad, you're angry, uh, you're offended by somebody, but you don't bring it up and you don't let it go. Okay? Um, Avoidance is you're going to hold on to it, but never bring it up, never gets resolved. And uh, people, and by the way, Research shows that avoidance is, uh, in America anyway, it's our number one favorite style and strategy of conflict resolution, is to, is to be offended but to avoid and not bring it up. The problem with avoidance is um, uh, they, they've compared it to when we have forest fires in the summer in Arizona. Somebody, somebody leaves one tiny little amber in, in a fire that they didn't quite put out when they were leaving their campsite, one tiny little amber, 
and a week later you've got 400,000 acres that are being burned. That's what happens when you avoid. Daniel Gilbert, the uh, uh, Harvard psychologist who's written a couple books on, on different things related to psychology, he says that uh, given a lack of information, people will connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. Okay? And when you avoid, you're not giving anybody information, and you're not getting any information, and so you naturally start to uh, connect the dots uh, in, in really bad ways because things start to grow in your mind when they're really not growing in reality. Then there's competing. Competing is the second one. Uh, competing, this is not like friendly competition. This is zero-sum game, glass parking lot. I'm going to win. You're going to lose. And that's the end of that. And it's not helpful. And uh, you probably all know somebody who's a competitor when it comes to conflict, and they have to win at any cost. And they will win at any cost. They'll, they'll lose reputation, trust, relationship, whatever it takes um, in the midst of that. Then there's accommodating. And accommodating is... Um, where you're, you're, you're paired up with a very strong competitor and you begin to realize that if you just give in, if you just comply, if you just accommodate, it accomplishes something that you feel pretty good about in the short term, that short term piece. But the problem is, is that the accommodator over a long period of time starts to build resentment and bitterness and then that becomes a problem. And so then uh, DeVito says you can collaborate, which is where you work with somebody, uh, and, or you can compromise, which is a form of collaboration, but you're, you're each putting skin in the game. Um, uh, Stephen Littlejohn, who's also a communication scholar, he calls compromise, I like his word better, he calls it cooperation. You're, you're giving and taking some, but you're working with somebody to try to get, to get, to get through the conflict to understand a problem, find a solution, and keep relationship intact. And if you look at Matthew 18, 15 through 17, where Jesus says, if um, somebody sins against you, go to them and show them their fault, and if they agree with you, you've won them over. Uh, if, if, if that doesn't work, then take her two, three, two or three others along with you to establish all the facts, blah, blah, blah. It's really interesting because if you compare what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18 to these conflict resolution styles and strategies, you find that Jesus is saying, don't avoid, don't compete, don't accommodate. He's saying you have to cooperate. You have to go to people. Now, let me just say a word about uh, letting things go is different than avoidance. Avoidance is not bringing it up, but holding on to it. Letting things go is an important part of being in relationship with anybody, uh, especially in close relationships like marriage. Um, you don't have to answer. In fact, I would rather you didn't answer this. But if you've ever been around, I would never assume anybody in this room would ever do this. So I'm assuming it's people outside of this room but you've probably been around couples where uh, one of them or both of them can't let anything go. They bring up every little offense every single time. And you know the saying, if everything's important, then nothing's important. And pretty soon people just begin to withdraw in the midst of that, and the relationship goes nowhere. Uh, there's a sense of discernment that takes place, uh, good discernment when you decide 
I, I'm not, uh, you know, that, that, that wasn't helpful, that wasn't nice, but I'm going to let it go. It's not worth bringing it up. So I, I tell premaritals all this all the time. Jackie's really good at letting stuff go. I can't even begin to imagine how much she lets go before she actually brings something up. Here's the advantage of that um, strategy, though, is that when she does bring something up, uh, I figure, well, she's probably let 90 other things go. I ought to listen to this one, right? So she's going to get a hearing, but if she's bringing every single thing up, eventually I'm not going to listen to any of it. So that's the difference between avoidance and letting go. They're very, very different. And, and if you think you're uh, letting go by avoiding, you're not. It's not helpful to avoid. That's a very destructive conflict resolution style or strategy. So what you have to do is you have to learn to discern what's worth bringing up, what's worth letting go, and recognizing that every relationship has stuff that you're going you're gonna to struggle with. Every relationship, friendships, romantic relationships, work relationships, partnerships, all of that stuff. So uh, learn how to discern in the midst of what you're going to bring up and what you aren't. The problem in Corinth is they didn't have that ability. They also didn't avoid. (laughs) They just brought everything up, and everything would go to the court system. So um, going to court was just something that you did in Corinth. But, But the problem was, was that the courts in Corinth also, two things with the problems with, uh, two problems with the courts in Corinth. First of all, they were a place where sin and corruption ruled, so your case was never decided by people who were interested in justice. They were, it was always decided by people who were interested in power and money. And the second problem was that the adjudicators were almost always bribed in a case. So the rich always won, and the poor never won in court, and they were powerless. It was part of the system that oppressed the poor. So Paul's saying, let most of this stuff go. And in verses 7 and 8, that's literally what he writes. He says, let it go. So then verses 3 and 4, he says, because we are now spiritually discerned. Now he makes this argument. We're spiritually discerned. We're in Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to even judge angels someday. We should be capable of of adjudicating these conflicts if you really have to take it to somebody. In fact, he says it's foolish to take them to the worldly courts, be those those courts of law or courts of public opinion or courts of gossip. It's just foolish to take take these things to these courts. And the the Corinthians were doing all of those things. They were not only taking them to the the legal courts, but they were also taking them to the courts of, of public opinion. And then verses 5 and 6, this is pretty direct sarcasm and rebuke in verses 5 and 6. He says, are you really this incompetent? You really can't judge these things? You're not not capable of sitting down and helping uh, people work some of this stuff out? Are you saying that the world has more wisdom than you do? Now remember how he opened this whole letter with chapters 1 and 2, all about the wisdom uh, of the world being foolishness and the wisdom of Uh, and the foolishness of God being actual wisdom. He's saying, you really should be taking care of these things. You should be taking these things in the church. So this wisdom thing keeps coming up. It's interesting, the the Corinthians were very arrogant about how smart they were. They really thought that they were wise, and yet Paul points out here that they apparently don't have enough wisdom to handle these petty disputes. Okay? 
Also, he's appalled that they're suing each other, Christian brothers taking meaningless disputes before the world. It also seems like, this is interesting, there's, there's this sort of angle in there that a couple of commentators brought up. It seems like also maybe it's just that the leaders of the church don't want to work. This, this sounds like a lot of work. Church leaders don't want to be bothered with this. And there's a part of me that understands this, I will tell you. I, I, this, this has, believe it or not, this has not happened since I've come to redemption. But at my old church, this happened on occasion. One spouse would call me up on the phone and tell me to tell the other spouse what to do. Literally. Okay, and, and I say, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Why would you think I should do that? Well, because you're the pastor, they'll listen to you. And my answer was always the same. Nobody listens to me about anything in the first place. What makes you think your spouse is going to listen to me? That was my way of being sarcastic like Paul. But it's funny, Craig Rochelle, who um, planted the network of churches that are known as Life Church in, in Oklahoma, um, and he's written a number of books, he, he writes this, far too many people believe that they are called into ministry while they also believe that they are called to not work very hard. That's what he's found in ministry, <laughs> okay? So, it's true. So Paul con- continues to give these guys, uh, give it to these guys in a pretty tough way. But then Paul suggests a solution that really riles up the people. He says, why don't you just suffer the loss? Why don't you just eat the loss? He says, you know, you decide to sue each other in a way you've already lost. You've lost reputation, you've lost relationship, you're losing financial resources in the midst of this suit. Uh, years and years and years ago, I was a brand new Christian and I'd taken over the leadership of a business that was embroiled in a commercial real estate uh, kerfuffle. Is that the word? <laughs> a struggle that was that lawyers were involved in. And for about a year and a half, I continued with the lawyer approach, you know. And um, every time the monthly bill would come in for what we were spending on the lawyers in the midst of this, this struggle, it was a multi-million dollar uh, piece of real estate. Uh, but every time I would look at that bill, $10,000, $12,000, $15,000 a month. And, and this was back in um, 1987 when $10,000 was worth like $10,000. It's not like today where people are just carrying around ten grand, you know. Um, so it just, it killed me. And this was a year and a half of this. And, and it was interesting. I don't know. I wish I'd thought of this. And I said, I wonder what would happen if I just called the guy up on the other side and, and we circumvented the attorneys, and I just called this guy up and asked him out for coffee and had a conversation with him. I wonder what, would, what, what have I got to lose, you know? And so I went to coffee with the guy, which turned into breakfast, and, and within 90 minutes, we had the whole thing resolved. <laughs> and in the process, I found out that the guy was a Christian. <laughs> and we were like, why didn't we do this, you know, two years ago? You know, I wasn't around two years ago, but, you know, it was, it was so, all right, we settled the dispute, we quit spending all this money, we both felt like we came out of it whole, you know, and that was not a trivial dispute, by the way, that was not a trivial dispute, you know, that was, that was a major matter, and it, and it seemed to work, to work out. 
we literally saved, in the end, hundreds of thousands of dollars by having a cup of coffee together. Okay? There wasn't even liquor involved, which is just fascinating to me. You know? So he says, why, Paul says, why not suffer loss when you've already gained Christ? Now, we also have to say this, and I want to make sure that we say this and, and, and make sure this is clear. You may be asking, is there never a time that a Christian has a right to go to court for a dispute? Uh, of course there's, there's going to be times. Uh, this is not an, uh, an effort to overlook criminal behavior. Um, it, it's not an effort to overlook a situation where, where, when you're dealing with somebody who isn't in Christ as well. I mean, that presents a whole new set of problems. Um, Romans 13 says that we're to submit to the governing authorities. So if there's criminality involved, those kinds of things. Um, But you can also start with the wise counsel of the church. Because they're generally speaking going to be people in the church. Maybe it's not the pastor, maybe it's not even an elder, but they're going to know people in the church that might be able to help direct you to a Christian perspective on your particular marketplace problem, which could help you in some way. Okay? And remember that most of what Paul is speaking against here is trivial. But we get ourselves embroiled in trivial stuff as well in the church all the time. We really struggle against that. And then verse 8, he says, you know, you're just hurting your own body when you do this, and you're behaving like unbelievers. Then he gets to verses 9 through 11, which, if you think about it, it feels a little bit out of context. So let me, let me read those verses. You know, while I was just uh, working through verses 1 through 8, I was praying that, that um, God would turn off the air conditioning, and he did, and that was wonderful. So uh, He writes in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's fascinating to me how Paul keeps rebuking, 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 correcting, 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 but he keeps coming back and telling them, you are in Christ, you are Christians, you are saved. This doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. This has everything to do with how you're manifesting uh, your life in Christ. It's missing the mark. But what's interesting about these three verses is that this is often cited as a passage against illicit, uh, unbiblical sexual ethics. And that's good because it is. It is a passage against illicit, unbiblical sexual ethics. This is yet another reminder from Paul that libertinism or licentiousness or the abuse of grace, whatever you want to call it, is not good and it needs to stop. But the context of these three verses, which these verses are usually quoted out of this context, the context is explaining why we shouldn't allow unbelievers to be arbitrators of our lawsuits. Here he says, he says, here's the reason why. Verses 9 and 10, that's the reason why. He says, the very people that you were before Christ, revilers, drunkards, adulterers, all of this stuff, 
And by the way, you continue to be to some extent because you're allowing the flesh to win. But the very people you were before you came to Christ are those whom you have decided can be judge and arbiters over your disputes. But they have no chance to judge your case with righteousness and with integrity because they don't know Jesus. That's a problem. Better than anyone, he's telling the Corinthians, better than anyone, you should know why suing each other in worldly courts is a bad idea because those people, those courts and those systems are fraught with sin and corruption. You ought to know that better than anybody. And then he says, but you're washed, sanctified, and justified by the Spirit of God. Washed is Paul's way of saying here, you are a new creation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Sanctified is, of course, set apart and consecrated for God's work and his transformation that is an ongoing process in you. And then justified means that in Christ, you have a right, righteous, and redeemed standing before God. You, you, you can you engage, can, I know this is hard, for some of us to really get. It's hard for me to get. You can engage in sin one minute, but if you're in Christ, that very next minute, God looks at you and he doesn't see you and your sin, he sees Christ. That's, that's the benefit, that's the beauty, that's the joy of being in Christ. And that's what, one of the things that Paul's trying to get at here. You're in Christ. So now, start allowing that type of behavior to manifest itself. In you, And all of this is done, the wash, the sanctified, the justified, all of it is done by God, by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit filling us. But then Paul does transition into a treatise on fleeing sexual immorality here. Now verses 12 through 20, the last part of chapter 6, are still in the context of not suing each other. We're members of a body and we shouldn't settle things in worldly ways with systems that are infected with human corruption and sin. And yet he does expand and start talking about some some problems with sexual immorality and just generally this idea of licentiousness and and, um, uh, abusing grace. So verses 12 through 19 or 20. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Another way that's been distributed is all things are uh, distributed. Another way that's been translated is uh, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So, verses 12 and 13, if, if Christians would just do a better job of living out this one little principle, it would be great. Just because something is lawful or acceptable or tolerable, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for us. Do you all understand that? Does that make sense? How many times has somebody said, well, there's no law against it? Okay, keep your hand on your wallet when somebody says that, (laughs) right? Hide your kids, too, all right? See, in Corinth, now listen, let's talk a little bit about Corinth in the first century. They were a very progressive, sophisticated, cosmopolitan, enlightened culture, and they had no qualms about various sexual proclivities. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Richard's going, nah, doesn't sound familiar. (laughs) And the people in the church in Corinth wanted to be able to live out these progressive, sophisticated mores while still being a part of the church and still having Christ. Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Again, it's it's the same problem. The more and more I read and study Paul's letters, which I've been doing a lot of in the last six to nine months. Um, They're very didactic, by the way. Not a lot of narrative, but it's been good to study them. The more I study them, the more I realize that Paul is dealing with exactly the same problems in the first century that we deal with in the 21st century. We just have better technology to do the same things that they used to do. And to track it. (laughs) And to find out about it. You know? Why are there so many more um, sexual uh, sex offenders in prison today? Tens of thousands more than 20 years ago. Why? Because of the internet, it becomes easier to manifest that sin. And because of the internet, it becomes easier to catch them. See that? It's both sides. Okay? It's the same thing. Human nature has not changed. God's nature has not changed. The technology with which we can manifest our nature has changed, though. That's what's changed. So you read Paul's stuff and you go, same thing's happening now. You know, Paul would be writing the same, essentially the same, the same letters. Okay? So Paul says, no, this is not what the church is supposed to look like. And then in that very same verse, he follows up his first statement with with yet another principle we really don't care for. He says, doing what's best for us actually takes discipline. Yes, Paul says, the grace and freedom we have in Christ, we can do whatever we want. But that kind of thinking is what leads to false gods and addictions. Paul says in Galatians, he says, don't use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. I know so many people that are willing to do that. And by the way, it's interesting uh, how many of those people I've known who have done that, and then they actually get tired of the sin, and they go, okay, I guess I ought to just be in Christ and give up on the sin. Because they never get the satisfaction from the sin that they think they're going to get. They think, well, this is great. Now that I have Jesus, I can just do it all I want and get satisfaction. And it just doesn't work that way. But it's also how people become addicted to things. So I think about, as I'm reading through this, I think about Ephesians 5.18. You know, this is, uh, 
this is where Paul is, is saying, um, he's giving his little treatise about, uh, listen, don't walk as a, an unwise person in this world, but walk as a wise person. Because the days are dark and the days are evil. So what he's saying is if you don't have the wisdom of God, you're going to struggle to navigate this sinful, fallen, corrupt world. Okay? And then he uses this as an illustration. He gets to verse 18 and he says, Therefore, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, what's he saying there? Now, I know some people have taught, well, you know, this is, this is Paul saying that you should never drink wine. Okay, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> you don't understand rhetoric if that's what you think. I've heard people say, I'm glad I drink beer, so I guess I'm exempt from this verse. Or vodka, whatever it might be, you know, Manhattans, whatever. Okay, you're missing the point of the verse. What, what do you, you, you can insert anything in there for, for wine that has become a false god for you, that, that has mastered you, that has... Um, that your freedom in Christ has given an opportunity for, to your flesh with. So the funny thing is, is, is that most of the stuff you can put in there are good things. They've just been elevated to, to false god or idol level, okay? So, you know, don't get drunk on power, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't live your life under the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit of God. If you're living your life under the influence of liquor, it's... That's not good. He didn't say you can't have a glass of wine. He didn't say you can't have a beer. He's saying don't be drunk. Don't be drunk on power. Don't be drunk on status. Don't be drunk on um, affirmation. Don't be drunk on wealth. Don't, it, there's all, it, none of these things are bad. It's just when we elevate it. Now, if he were to say don't be, don't be drunk on meth, I would argue that's bad, okay, in any situation, all right? But most of these things, what he's trying to get across is that the good things in the world can become these gods. And he's making the same argument here. I will not be mastered by anything. Nothing in my life is going to become an idol. There's not going to be a false god. Jesus is always going to have his rightful first place in my life. So he asks, do you actually have behaviors in your life that you are mastered by? Understand that Christ sets us free. I'll tell you, though, a lot of people struggle with this biblical teaching because it's hard and it's costly and it's very difficult to die to self. You know? I want a great life of success. I want to be talented and I want some notoriety, but I really don't want to do the work that it takes to get there. Well, welcome to the 21st century. You know, that's not a new thought. Um, Way, way, way back in the dark ages, in the 90s, when I was uh, at Grand Canyon University doing my bachelor's degree, I, um, um, I was in my 30s when I went back to school. And this was back when, you know, people in their 30s didn't go to college. So I was weird. And, uh, um, and so I, what I found out, and by the way, this is back when Grand Canyon had 1,500 students. It was a small liberal arts college. And um, I found out something, that if you're, if you're an old person at a small liberal arts college, you should audition for plays, because you don't have to have any talent. They just need old people in, in, the, in the, the script has old people, so that you're going to get a part. And so I auditioned three different times for three different plays, and I got parts, you know. 
But it was a great experience because I, I, uh, I got to know, um, and I always, it was always minor parts. I, uh, twice I played a father, and once I actually played a father, like a priest, in, in the play. I, by the way, I was, I was at GCU today, and I noticed that um, one of the plays they're doing this year is a play called The Ladies Not for Burning. I was the priest in The Ladies Not for Burning in 1996. It was, so, and then now they're doing it. I, I'm a little disappointed that the director, Claude Pences, who's still there, didn't come and ask me to play the priest, <laughs> since I am around on campus and everything. Anyway, um, so uh, there was a guy there named Michael Carey, though. He was, he was a regular traditional college student, massively talented actor, really talented guy. Uh, he went off and did his stuff. He was on Broadway and did a bunch of stuff for about 20 years, and did really, really well, and then he came back to GCU, got his PhD, and now he's uh, teaching uh, theater at GCU. So he's back, and I got to see him a few months ago, and, and we got, it was fun to be able to get back together with him. But um, I remember uh, one time uh, they had a piano on the stage during rehearsal, and, and Michael was in there playing the piano. And, and I got to tell you, Tyler Thompson's a really good piano player. Michael's as good as Tyler. I mean, he was just, it was, I was just like, here's this 20-year-old kid, and he's playing, you know, concert-level piano, classical piano stuff. And I was just like, wow. And I remembered saying out loud, I would give anything to be able to play the piano like that. <laughs> well, how foolish is that? Okay. Because a couple of weeks later, I walked in and I heard somebody doing on the piano. And I walked in and it was Michael Carey. He's doing his scales over and over and over. And I asked him, I said, what do you do? He said, I, I do scales for an hour every day. You got to do this. So I'm like, nah, I wouldn't do anything to be able to play like you. You see what I mean, though? We want that, but what it takes to, to attain that is tough. And it's, a, it's, it's the same thing in the church. We look around at these saints, <laughs> you know, man, to, be, to have a faith like that. And, and what, what we don't realize is that most of these people that have a faith like that, they've, they've struggled with their faith. It's been hard. There's been hard knocks. There's been discipline. There's been trial and tribulation and suffering and challenges and they've had to go through the fire to be able to get to that level where where they're like a, a church father or a church mother you know where people go to them and they and they recognize this tremendous faith and the way they're able to look at things like that so again look at verse um, 13 he said food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food God will destroy both one uh, and the other, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay, if ever there was a verse for today and the and the postmodern philosophy that we're being subjected to, this is the verse for it. This speaks against all of this postmodern philosophy that we're running into now. The idea that the body is separated from the spirit—it's a 21st century Gnosticism. It's the same stuff they were dealing with at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century where people were saying your body doesn't matter. Only thing that matters is, is your soul, your spirit. And Paul's saying, no, your body does matter. Your body matters to God. It's a temple. It's going to be raised. And it's the Lord's. Your body really does matter. 
The idea that, that everything today is just a construction. Okay? None of this is new. It was happening in the first and the second century. This stuff that we're dealing with right now, this postmodern philosophy stuff, okay? it's like a virus. It's been around for centuries. It just gets repackaged all the time. You know? I think it's funny because um, for a long time, we heard that sex is just biological. You don't have to worry. Just biological. It's just something you do with your body. Don't, wor- don't worry about it, okay? First of all, that's a lie. Sex is also emotional, it's neurological, and it's spiritual. Uh, Steve Donahue, who's a psychologist that used to teach at GCU, used to say that every time you have sex with a person, it's like getting a tattoo on your soul, okay? He says that's, that's, that's why... It's more important than just a biological function. But now, of course, we live in this world that's saying what? Well, biology isn't real. It's just a construction. Okay, well, make up your mind. But both of them are being driven towards sexuality, sexual orientation, sexual identity, gender identity, all of that. They they can't make up their mind which argument they're going to use. The problem is is that none of the arguments actually work once you start to unpack them, once you take them to their logical conclusion. This is why Paul says later in verse 18 that every other sin is outside of the body, but sexual sin has a special place in the transgression hierarchy because it happens inside of the body. It is emotional. It is neurological. It's spiritual. It is a tattoo on your soul. And then verses 14 through 17, Paul makes a clear argument for them and for us today. You cannot bifurcate the body and the soul. Your body is a temple. Jesus came to us bodily Our bodies will be raised. Your body is God's. My body is God's. Your body is the bride's, the church's. Plato, Plato argued. That's not the right wing for the um, Montreal Canadiens. Plato was a philosopher in the 4th century BC, okay? He was actually Aristotle's teacher, okay? He argued, and Paul would have known this since he was raised in Tarsus. Paul would have read all of Plato's stuff. Paul would have known this. Plato argued that human beings should do all sensual things that you can now in this life on earth because in the afterlife there will be no sensations. That's what he argued. Nothing new under the sun, y'all. That's what Solomon said. Okay? Most people don't realize that they're making a platonic argument with all of this sex stuff. They think they've come up with it new in the 21st century. Plato was way ahead of them. But Paul says, no, your body will be raised... And you're not your own, you are God's. And, and Paul then quotes uh, Genesis 2, 24. He says, a man and uh, a woman will be, uh, a, man, um, a, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay? It's interesting, you know, a lot of people know that uh, this idea of the two becoming one is something that happens in marriage. And I get that. Um, what's interesting is the two become one is a, is a biblical theme throughout the theme, uh, throughout the Bible. And, and it is about way more than just marriage. You read the Old Testament. It's about God and his people. The two become one. That's why God talks about his people rebelling against him and worshiping false gods. That's why he talks about it as adultery. He calls it idolatry, but he also calls it adultery. And that's why. Because it breaks the two becoming one. It is marriage. 
the two become one. It's also the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Paul says the same thing about Jews and Gentiles. In Christ, together, it breaks down the wall of hostility and the two become one, Jew and Gentile. It is also Jesus and the church, the groom and the bride. The two become one. The two become one language is used about the church as well, with God, with Jesus. And then, the two become one language is also used in Revelation when, when the new Jerusalem comes and remodels the old earth, the heavens and the earth come together and the two become one in this new creation known as the new Jerusalem. So Paul's conclusion to all of this in verses 18 through 20 is to flee sexual immorality of all kinds. You're no longer of this world, but you're now God's. If you're sinning, you're taking Jesus with you because you are one with him. Therefore, make God and his people your priority. And and also implied in all of this is quit taking your trivial court matters to worldly courts. And remember, it's not Paul saying that they aren't saved. I, I, I want to bring this up again. He's clearly stated throughout the entire letter that they are saved. But he is saying you don't seem to understand grace, you don't seem to understand the gospel, and you don't seem to understand the power of sin. Remember, sin always takes us further than we wanted to go. It keeps us there longer than we intended to stay. And it costs us way more than we were willing to pay in the first place. Further, longer, more. And then we're going to look at chapter 7 next week. But before we do, I want to mention one other thing. One other issue from verse 9. Verse 9, where it says, Nor men who practice homosexuality... Um, it's, it's still an issue, of course, but uh, in the 90s and, and the early 2000s, it was the issue that people were arguing about in church, uh, was same-sex marriage. Uh, it's really not much of an argument anymore because um, churches like ours that don't embrace same-sex marriage... Uh, we're not going to embrace same-sex marriage. The, the transition is pretty much over. Churches that kind of planted their flag on that are not going to move now. And the churches that are going to move or have moved have already moved. They've almost all gone that direction. So that argument is over with, and we've kind of, everybody's got, got their position now. But what was interesting to me in the midst of all of that in the 90s and the early 2000s was this is a verse where people would go to say, The Bible doesn't condone same-sex marriage. Okay, I get that. Um, He says that in 1 Corinthians 6-9, sure. Probably not the best place to start, though. Oh, okay, well then you must be talking about Romans 1. That's a good place to go. So you know Romans 1, verses like verses um, maybe 20 through 28. And specifically, Paul there talks not about homosexuality for men, but he also talks about lesbianism. So same-sex attraction for women, too. Talks about that there. Another powerful passage about same-sex. Okay, that's another place to go. Where else could you go? Well, Leviticus. Oh, but that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Where else can you go? Jude. Okay. Yeah, you can make an argument out of the... If if you don't know what Jude is, Jude is a New Testament postcard. It's one chapter. Paul put it on a little postcard before he sent it to Jude. Where should you go, though? How about creation? 
in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God says, let us make human beings, man, human beings in our image and after our likeness. And then he goes into that little poetry in verse 27, male and female, he created them. So I don't, I don't know, some of you maybe have heard me talk about this before, others of you haven't, so I'm, that's why I'm bringing it up. You know, that word, uh, the ancient Hebrew had a number of different words for man, woman, male, female, all that. Um, the word for male there uh, literally means um, one who carries a spear or one who pierces. And the word for female there literally means one who is pierced. Are you, catch, are you catching the imagery there? Okay. You get the, the design, the organized design that God had for two genders in the very beginning in creation before sin permeated? You get that? If people want to talk about the biblical notion of, of all this gender and, and same-sex stuff, the first place I go is to the creation story. This is, this is where God first laid it down and said, this is what it's going to look like. Sin has messed that up, and there are other places in the Bible that speak against that, but God specifically already created and designed us in this way from the very beginning. Okay? So next week, chapter 7. Thanks for indulging me the extra nine minutes. I started nine minutes late because of the, the microphone stuff, so... Anyway, let me pray, and we'll be on our way. And I'm sorry if the place you wanted to go to dinner closes at 8, so you're going to be late.